so we've talked about what is church, and there's been three weeks in this series. First, what is, what is church? It's in Christ. And we found out that to be in church, you have to be in Christ. I remember uh, hearing once that to be in Christ and to claim that you're in Christ just because you're in a church building is kind of like sitting in a garage and claiming that you're a car just because you're sitting in that garage. It doesn't actually work, right? You have to actually get involved and get connected to Christ to be a part of the church. Being in a building, being a member of a church even is, is, isn't enough. But then being in Christ isn't enough. You're a part of a community. Now, this is a very, very difficult proposition, whether you like it or not. You are a part of the other people in this room and a part of a worldwide movement of Christians who are on every continent and who have been meeting for over two millenniums. Isn't that interesting? So that means that when you look around you and you see other people who you would identify as Christians, you're going to spend eternity with them, whether you like it or not. That is actually God's choice, not yours. Do you wish you had a choice in this matter? I'm just telling you, you don't. And I'm thankful you don't. You might choose not to spend eternity with me. Then the third, uh, the third category is in mission. And it tells us that God's light reflects in the life of a believer in the midst of this community, and then it reflects out. And people see that, and they are transformed and changed far beyond our efforts, far beyond anything we can do to, to, to market our uh, beliefs or to somehow uh, preach the word, any of that stuff. We actually reflect, knowingly or unknowingly, accidentally or intentionally. There is a, there is a quality of mission to the life of the church. This morning we get to talk about in the light. We have to walk in the light. Now, Jay Deering sent me an email a couple weeks ago, and it was about our denomination in particular. We're a part of this denomination called the Church of the Brethren. It's a small uh, denomination from Germany. But it said, how many brethren does it take to change a light bulb? That's what the email said. And I thought, whatever comes after this, I am going to be in trouble just for reading. You know, it's one of those emails you should delete before you opened it. And it said, change? What change? How many, how many brethren does it take to change a light bulb? Change what change? We don't believe in change. We don't change. We don't like change. So I was reading this passage in Ephesians 4 and 5, and I was reading through it, and it started to do some things that I didn't like. It asked me to change. I was reading this passage, and I'm going, I don't like this. Why have I got to read this? Ephesians 4 and 5, I, I think we should you know, forget this part of the Bible. In fact, I, when I'm reading a book and I, I'm reading something that I disagree with, I often go back to the cover and go, who am I reading? I forget who the author is. So I went back to this Bible. And some of you know we have a pastor emeritus. Uh, his name is Bob Latcher. He pastored the church for 40 years before Tim and I got here. And uh, I, so I was reading this Bible in particular, and I flipped to the front page, and I said, whose Bible is this? It's telling me these things I don't like this morning. And it says, Bob Latshaw on the cover. Now, I want, you to, I want you to know this because if you disagree with anything I say from here to four, you have an appeals process that is present in the building. I think Bob's actually still here praying in some anteroom. You can go talk with him because it's his Bible that says this stuff, okay? So if you don't like what I say this morning, that's totally fine. Just go talk to Bob. Don't talk to me. I'll be driving to Brooklyn, and I can't answer the phone all afternoon. All right. So with that in mind, we're going to move forward into what it means to be a church that is in the light. 
This is a passage not from Ephesians, it's from Philippians chapter 3, another book the same writer wrote in the same general period of his life. He wrote both of these books from prison. He was imprisoned for his faith. We're thinking this week about martyrs and the possibility that there are people around the world hurting. Paul was one of those people when he wrote this book. He was imprisoned and without freedom when he wrote both the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Philippians. It says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Just think about the first part of this verse. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So let's for, this is just for hypothesis, just theoretical, okay? Let's imagine that I have a yellow Lamborghini in the church parking lot right now. Now you didn't notice it when you came in at, at Shelby drove in it and while you were in Sunday school, no doubt. And it's out there. And so what I'm going to offer you is after the service, why don't you stick around and each one of you can test drive my Lamborghini. Okay? And so what would you do? Imagine this. You're driving out of the Parker Ford Church parking lot down Reinhardt Road and pretend that Officer O'Keefe here is not in the front row. Just, yeah, for those of you who don't know what John does for a living, I just dimed him out. Anyway, uh, so as, we, as you're par- pulling out onto Old Schuylkill, you immediately realize that the speed limit is 35 miles an hour, and you just drive slowly uh, down Old Schuylkill to Bethel Church Road, where you get on 724, where you realize the speed limit is picked up to 45, so you go about 44 miles an hour, right? And then you, then you get over through Royers Ford and you go up onto 422 and everybody is polite and courteous and drives the speed limit on 422. So you do as well in the right lane and there are some idiots out there who are passing you on the left in your Lamborghini. That's what you do, right? If you got handed this beautiful car with this magnificent engine, you would immediately decide to follow all of the traffic laws. Or would you realize that you could probably outrun any of the police officers in our county with that car and you might as well just push the hammer down and go? Paul is an interesting guy. He's a person who persecuted Christians. He was a religious leader in his day. And when he was a religious leader, he went so far as to kill other Christians. And he believed this whole thing was a farce, this thing that's built on the idea of Jesus rising from the dead. And wouldn't you? If somebody just came along and told me their grandmother rose from the dead last week, I would say, you need to be committed. We have institutions for people like that. But Jesus, on the other hand, appeared to Paul and started to talk to him. And he appeared appeared to him in such power that he had no choice but to believe in it. And so at that moment, he becomes a lifelong follower of Jesus. And in becoming that lifelong follower of Jesus, he realizes that the source, the symbol, and the the central point of all of the power in Christianity, anything that's ever going to change a human life through this faith, is based in this moment, this power of the resurrection. And so when Paul writes this verse, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, it's as though he thinks he's gotten a Lamborghini. And it's as though he wants to see how far and how deep and how long, how amazing God's word can end up being to this world that he lives in. And he travels from Africa to Asia all the way around the Mediterranean. So far, some people think he even went to Spain. Paul got all over the known world sharing the truth of God's love. And he watched as church after church was planted. And he watched as life after life was changed. And he realized this wasn't just a power that happened one moment in southern Israel in the 30s AD. It was actually a power that continued in individual lives and in individual churches moving forward. And so he says, my life goal is to know Christ in this power and to see how far it will get. You'd want to know how fast that Lamborghini could go, right? 
You would love to know that, especially on Sunday afternoon when 422 is pretty empty. You would go, how fast can I go? And Paul's whole mission in life is, how far can we get? And so he spreads the truth of God's love to all of these people. And the church where he spends the most time is this church in the city of Ephesus, probably a bunch of house churches. He spends over two years there. And he gets to know all of these Christians. And he starts to realize, after he's been there a while and after he moves on, that because you're a Christian and because you think of yourself as in Christ and in community and mission, there's also some other things that happen where maybe those same people don't commit all the way to Christianity. He starts to realize that there are people who are questioning authenticity and say, you know, this power of God isn't so much. And when he starts to identify why the power of God isn't enough, he realizes the reason the power isn't enough is not because God's lacking, it's because the people aren't following God's plan. And so he says the most obvious thing in this passage that you could think of, and I would too, and that's you have to change. You actually can't see the power of God in your life without significant committing commitment to that change. And so the next passage I want to read for you, it's from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. He tells these people an interesting line. He says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Some of you have walked in your life and felt like Christ is not shining on you. And you may identify yourself as a Christian, and you may be members of a church, and you may believe in yourself and say, you know, I think I'm a Christian, but yet you miss that, somehow that light, that energy, that power that God has for you. And you wonder why. Paul says, your job this morning is to wake up. I used to come home late in high school, later than I probably should have. And I remember walking into my house and I had a game I played whenever I got there after my brother went to bed. My brother also was a police officer and uh, probably would not want to hear this story about the Lamborghini, but he's two and a half years younger than me. And I'd walk into my house and I'd walk into his room and uh, he'd be asleep or he'd look like he was asleep. And I would talk to him and I'd say, hey, how are you? And sometimes he wouldn't answer because he was asleep. Other times he would say, get out of here. Why are you breaking in my room? I don't want you to talk to me at this time of night. Other times, and these are the moments I lived for, other moments he responded, but he wasn't awake. And I would get him to talk, and we would have whole conversations. Things that he would never want any earthly person to know about him would come out in those conversations. I would ask him what he really did last Friday night, and he would really tell me. And then the next morning I would tell him, hey, do you know what you did last Friday? You told me last night. He would be so furious. It was always tough to tell, though. Was he really awake or was he really asleep? Was he all the way comatose sleep in the REM, you know, rapid eye movement segment of his night? Or was he kind of on the way where you could get him talking? And when I could get him talking, it was great. It was probably bad for our relationship and great for my humor life. You know, it was just fun. So this passage tells us, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a question asked of us, directed directly to us, each one of us in this passage. It asks us, are we awake? Are we just kind of walking through the Christian life with segments of our old self still very much a part of what is a new self? When you walk into Christ, what this passage is going to tell you is that there is this new walk that you're supposed to be a part of. There's an old way and there's a new way. Let me read it for you. I'm going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 4. It will not be on the screen this morning, so you'll have to look in your Bibles if you want to read. But you can also just listen. It says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, 
and the futility of their thinking. The Gentiles are an ethnic group, and pretty much all of us are a part of that. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. But he doesn't actually mean it ethnically. What he means is the culture you came from. This way of life you used to live amongst all these people you're now surrounded by, you have to walk away from that walk. You can't walk anymore like they did. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. This passage tells us that the old way was filled with futility. If you were born in a certain station in life, you would die in that station of life. You would walk through the drudgery of every day, living the same life, doing the same things for no apparent purpose other than to just put the next foot in front of the last one. And so this futility just continues on and on. And they had realized this ignorance and they had walked away from the lack of energy that was found in that life. And they had decided that the callousness, the insensitivity of their hearts needed replacing with sensitivity. And they had moved forward into this uh, giving up of their addictions. And all that was in their past. And yet they were keeping some pieces of it alive. Some of the darkness was still in the light. The new them had not left behind the old them. And he says, listen, this stuff, didn't you remember when you decided to follow Christ? That stuff, it it was just an addiction of wanting more. And then when you got what you wanted, you just still wanted more and more and more. And it was futile. And there was no place where it was going to go. You could see there was a purposelessness to this life. And Christ offered you purpose. Christ offered you mission and community. Christ offered you a place to belong. And yet you haven't left behind all of those old habits. You can see how this could be somewhat confrontive. Again, I'll remind you that if you find this personally offensive, you have a recourse. You can talk to Pastor Bob. He'll be here after the service. So if you don't like what you hear, that'll be no problem. But there's a new way. He says that there's this new attitude. Let me read it for you. This is verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. That futility, ignorance, darkness, all the addictions that you were a part of, that's not how you came to know Christ. Christ actually had much higher goals for you than that. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And this is where he begins a train of thought, which is very important. Put off this old stuff, he's going to say, and take on a new person. And you have to take on all of the clothes of that new person by putting away all of the old stuff from your life. That's going to be an important thought as we move forward. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In those last two words I want to focus on for just a moment, righteousness and holiness, we have this need that God replaces all of those ways of thinking and those attitudes and all of our behaviors with a new way. I want to illustrate what I mean. This past week, uh, we were, Tim and I, going to a basketball game, and I was meeting Tim someplace on the way, and I was going down 422, and it was getting dark. It was, in fact, it was fairly dark out. There was a little hint of light in the western sky. But I'm driving down 422, and all of a sudden I noticed this yellow thing right over the road on the horizon. And if you've ever seen one of those apocalyptic movies where you, you know, bombs go off in the distance, it looked a little bit like that, this circular glow, yellow. Or I started to be a little bit afraid. I thought maybe I should turn on the radio and discover what's uh, actually happened in our area of late. It looked like it might be over in Norristown. 
at the point in which I was looking. I was kind of trying to think of where this might be. And I started to watch, thinking, man, in this age of terrorist threats and danger, I wonder what has happened. And I kept watching, and it got bigger. And then it got bigger. And then the bottom end started to get smaller. And then I realized what an idiot I truly am. It was the moon. Just the moon. It was this peculiar yellow color. Just this gorgeous moon. I mean, what I had been afraid of before, all of a sudden I woke up to and thought, this, it looks gigantic and it was full. I don't know if it was really full. Some of you are going to tell me full was Saturday. I don't know. But this was Friday night. It was a gigantic moon. And I honestly had gotten afraid of this thing. And then I sat there and I thought, my goodness, our creator God made this. And I, I mean, there's nobody there to share it with. I thought, should I call somebody on the phone? I mean, this is so great. People should be going outside of their houses and looking at this thing. It's that beautiful. Now, it happens every night, right? If the clouds aren't there, but I'm just enamored with it. This passage says this line. Let me repeat it for you. This passage says this line. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. God is righteous. And he creates things in righteousness, even moons. He creates suns that, that we mutate around every, every year. This, this, amazing, uh, this amazing traveling plan that God has laid out for our planet. We have the, the, the leaves turning colors right now and now leaving the trees. And it's just beautiful. As I watched my kids yesterday jumping in the latest leaves to drop on my lawn that I had to rake up, they're just having this great time. I got wonderful pictures. We could talk about all of the beauty that God has created. And this passage asks us to think that we can become like God and his righteousness becoming like us and our righteousness becoming like him. And we have this sense that we are wanting what God wants. We are changed internally, according to this passage. He wants us to be altered. And all of that futility and darkness, the old way, needs to give way to a new righteous way of life with beauty and sensitivity of heart to those things of beauty trumping that darkness of yesteryear. It doesn't stop there. He says that we're to be holy. And he's not just giving direction in this passage. He's actually saying we're to be created. God is recreating you and I to be righteous like that moon was beautiful. When I was a kid, I remember people adopting the slang language of bikers in my area. You know, the bikers, the ones that wear leather and drive Harley Davidson's bikers. And they would say things like, man, that is righteous, you know, that is righteous, dude. In my high school, there was a whole era. I won't tell you how long it lasted, and I won't tell you if I ever used that language or not. But righteousness was actually something that you said about things that were just beautiful and good. Holiness is a whole different story. When I was a senior at co- in college, after Tim and I had, uh, Tim had moved out. He, we were roommates for a year. Those, some of you know that in college, and that didn't last for very long. We, it, you know, it went the other way. And uh, we're still friends, but we're roommates, you know. There's only so many people you can live in a room with, especially when that room's about 10 by 10. Uh, but I got a freshman roommate from Nebraska. And uh, my freshman roommate from Nebraska, I, I started to notice something strange about him. I would go to class, and he would uh, come later to class. He usually slept in, and I would get up early. And as I was in my class, I would later on in the day see him, and I would see my clothes. He, w- he would wear my clothes, my shoes, my pants, my shirts, my hats, my this, my that. And I started to notice he would use my books, my CDs, and he just kind of realized that I'm a person who's kind of, you know, 
free with my belongings. And he would say, you don't mind, right? Oh, no, I don't mind, you know? I mean, I was a theology student. You're supposed to be like Christ. And I mean, Jesus gave up everything for us. I better at least let him wear my jeans. Okay, so I'm walking through my life and I'm realizing that he's got more and more of my clothes on. Now, you know, pants aren't so sacred and holy. There's nothing big about that. And even my CD is not a big deal. And, you know, I mean, he wanted to use this and that. It's fine. But one day, I left for class in the morning, and I was brushing my teeth and shaving and doing all that stuff you do when you, and I put everything back, and I, I went to class, and I saw my roommate throughout the day. He's from Nebraska. I've still, I can't be a Cornhusker fan. Anytime after this, I vote again. I vote for anybody who's playing the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Anyway, I, I come back at lunch, and I go to the bathroom, and I see that my toothbrush My toothbrush, which was on one side of the sink, is now on the other side of the sink. Holy. Pants might not be holy. Shoes not holy. Toothbrushes are truly holy. They are sacred. Nobody touches another person's toothbrush, right? So I confront him and I say, you didn't by chance. And he said, yeah, I didn't think you'd mind. (laughs) And he said, did you mind? And it's at that moment that I broke the ninth commandment. Absolutely not. You can use my toothbrush anytime you want. And I went down to the pharmacy and I bought a whole nother toothbrush. And I kept it in a case in my book bag, never to be placed again in the bathroom. And I left that pseudo toothbrush making him think that I was allowing him to use it and I was using it, but I was no longer using it. I never used that toothbrush again. God calls us to be righteous and he promises that he wants to create us into somebody who wants to be good like he is good and he creates us into holiness wanting to be useful for God. Toothbrushes are useful objects. They're not supposed to be useful for more than one person. God wants you to be useful only for him. And he's recreating you into someone who is set apart, set aside, who is altered to be what he wants you to be. And you are useful for his mission and his community. And you are in his son and the great love that Jesus has for you. And for that reason, he says, there are things you shouldn't do, things you shouldn't be a part of. You have to take off and put off that old stuff and take on all of what God's called you to be in this life now. So we're going to walk through what is maybe the most painful part of this passage. I'll just admit right up front, it's painful because he says you got to take off this stuff. And he's going to walk through basically four different things that you need to change and I need to change about our old culture and to moving into this new way of life. First, he's going to talk about the way we talk. Second, he's going to talk about the way we steward. Third, he's going to talk about, this is my favorite, he's going to talk about the way we get mad. I like that. He doesn't tell us not to get mad. He says what to do when we do get mad. And then fourth, he tells us what to do with our secrets, the things we don't want anybody to know. So the first one, he says, change the way you talk. Take off the deception, the obscenity, the crass joking, slander, destructive conversation. Let me read it for you. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. This is verse 29. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You know, a few weeks ago, we learned that the community of God is actually made up of all of these different pieces of stones, and it's as though God pictures it like a church. Each one of you is a brick in this church, and the worldwide church of God is made up of millions of bricks, and each one of you are important and sacred and holy, and you are set apart for God's purpose. But the interesting thing is, words are the things that can tear that down. We can be torn down by another's words so easily, right? And then we stop functioning 
in the way that God called us to be. We move ourselves out of where he's called us because of somebody else's criticism, because of somebody else's slander, because of somebody else's obscenity or or dark joking, something that affects us in our hearts. We can be altered by this stuff, and it's actually destructive to the plan of God in our lives. Words are some of the most important things that we have going for us. They're powerful. I know the old saying is that sticks and stones break bones, but words won't hurt. But I'm sure that words have hurt me much more than any sticks and stones. And so he says, be careful with your words. Replace those deceptions with honesty. The goodness that needs to replace all of this darkness and stop all of that stuff that discourages and destroys and start to build up the body of Christ. Why does he say these things? He gives two reasons. I'm not going to read all of the scripture because there's a lot this morning. First off, he says, we're members of one body. We're members of one body. He says this, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor for we are all members of one body. You are part of each other. When you talk about each other, you're actually hurting yourself. You just don't realize it. And I'm the same way. We're a part of this community that can be broken by each other's words. The second thing is that it grieves the heart of God. It grieves the spirit of God. Periodically, when I'm driving in the van and I have all three kids in the back, I hear in the back seat language that is just unfortunate. One kid will look at the other and say, you're not as smart as I am. The other kid will say, well, you're not having any fun. You're a loser. We've heard this language in the Bitework house. You probably never heard it in your house. Uh, But the word loser and the word stupid and the word... uh, any number of things. They, they get, and I stop the car in those moments and I say, do you know you just said that about my daughter? And the other one says, well, I'm your daughter too. And I said, well, that's not the point. You've actually hurt someone that I love. This is my daughter whom I love. And you just said something to her that made her feel dumb, that made her feel less than adequate, that made her feel like she's somehow not important in the world scheme of things. Well, I'm your daughter. Well, yeah, and if she would have said that to you, I would have stopped the car the same way because I love you too. When you think about that, me as a father reflecting on what I feel towards my children, God feels the same way about us. You may think that person across the room from you is an idiot, but when you say it, the Spirit of God hears it. And the Spirit of God was there when Jesus offered himself up on the cross for that person to save them. And he says, really? Jesus forgives them and you can't? What an amazing thought. And it grieves the heart of the God who loves each one of his children absolutely as much as he loves any other. Isn't that amazing? You know, when Jesus forgives us, the distance between us and him, the distance between us and him is far greater than the worst person on the planet to me. Okay, the distance between me and the worst person I can think of is less than the distance between Josh Whitework and Jesus. He's forgiven me for greater things if we're comparing each other than I'll ever have to forgive anybody else on this planet. We'll talk about that more. But this grieves the heart of God when somebody starts to talk badly about another person because Jesus loves them. We're going to continue on. The next thing he's going to talk about is stewarding. And he says, you've got to take off stealing. Now, how many of you, just raise your hands and say it, have stolen this week? you still got the ski mask in your trunk, right? All of you have been to a bank and you have robbed it and you are now rolling in the dough. And our offering is probably going to reflect that this morning because you stole. Nah, we don't steal like that, right? Most of us don't steal. But we are easily tempted to not think of belongings as coming from God. 
In the ancient world that Paul was writing to, there were these lower classes of people, and you could never raise out of those classes. Once you were born a slave or in this certain class, you were always in that class, and you would never have the things that other people had. You could never move up that caste system. And so when he was talking about those, talking to these people, they were people who it was just kind of a custom that part of what they got would come from stealing. And he was actually telling them, listen, learn to trust God with what you need in your life. Learn to trust God for what he will provide and stop this way of life where you take what doesn't belong to you. I was selling a car a few years ago, and the guy said, well, we're gonna, it wasn't a very nice car. I think I sold it for about $1,500. He said, why don't we just say we, you sold it for $800? they will never know the difference. And the 6% Michigan sales tax on cars, well, now it'll be less. And we won't have to pay all that money. I said, well, wouldn't that be dishonest? Well, it's the state. They're always dishonest. Politicians, he goes into this philosophical conversation sitting in the garage. You know, we don't need to worry about the state of Michigan. I mean, look at all those guys. They're all ripping us off anyway. Let's take some back. How do we steal? We steal when we get a little bit more change than we should, and we don't take it back to the cash register. We steal when we decide that we really don't need to report all of our income and our income taxes. We steal when we start to think that it's okay that we live these lives of subtle delusions and that we don't trust God for everything that comes to us. If you don't have enough, another passage of Scripture will say, ask God, go talk to him. Don't talk about him. Don't look like somebody else is responsible. Talk to the provider. He loves to provide. Take off stealing. And then he says, but put on a new work ethic. And the reason why is you gain the joy of giving when you work really hard for your money and then you decide, you know what, that family needs it and you give them money, you suddenly feel like a million bucks. You probably don't have a million bucks, you just feel like it. And you suddenly realize that God has put this giving pattern in our life and he's calling us to steward our belongings in such a way that we can give to another and the blessing of giving is one of the great blessings of the Christian faith. You lose all of it if you don't earn what you've got if you suddenly are dishonest in some way. He moves on, and this is my favorite one he's going to talk about. Change the way you get mad. Paul says, change the way you get mad. Let me tell you how he says this. He says, in your anger, do not sin, verse 26. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, don't act out in your anger. It doesn't say, don't get mad. Raise your hand if you've been mad in the last week. Okay, there's 80% of you are honest and the rest of you are liars. Um, Because, I mean, you drive in the same counties I do. I'm in between Montgomery and Chester County. You get mad. I get mad every week. I get mad every week in the car, okay? What I do with that anger is a really big question, right? This passage tells us to do some specific things. Take off the bitterness. Take off the malice. Take off the rage. Take off the brawling attitude and move forward in your life and put on some other things. I think it's Carrie Underwood who has this song out right now about a guy who cheats on her. Have you heard this song? And it, it's, a, it's a pretty little sports car, if I remember right. I'm not going to sing it for you. Me and Carrie have very little in common. You'll be surprised by that, I'm sure. But he, he takes, she, t- she says she took the car and she keyed the side of it and she slices the tires and takes a Louisville slugger to both the headlights. And she writes her name in the leather seat, if I remember right, all because she's furiously angry. And was she justified for what the guy does in that song? Absolutely. We have a yes from the front row. (laughs) And, I mean, when I listen to it, I think she's right, too. I mean, what do you do with a guy who does that to a girl? Man, goodness gracious. You, You know, hopefully she had a few friends to make the car worse. That's what my heart does. 
And yet this passage asks us to think that acting in our anger after we're through the forgiveness of Jesus is wrong. That guy didn't hurt Carrie more than we've hurt Jesus. Scary thought that, right? That's a terrifying thought. He he says, take off that old stuff and put on this new stuff. Let the offenses go. In the first service, Shelby wasn't here, and I told this story, and then I realized she was going to be here in the second service. So now you're going to watch me eat my crow. But, the, you know, the trap on the, on the dish, on the kitchen sink, or not the trap, that drain thing, you know, I, I hate that stuff that accumulates there. And I always clean it out, always. I'm just going to say that much. And I, I look at it, and if there is like a bean in it or something, I get mad. I just sit there and look at that bean, and I'm so offended at a bean for being in my kitchen sink. Have you ever been there? You're laughing at me. You probably should be. Letting the offenses go. The little stuff, the people you get most offended with are the people you live with. You know it's true. You don't get offended with anybody else in this world nearly as much as the, your spouse, your kids, whoever it is you're living closest to. Put on kindness, compassion, and last of all, forgive. Be a part of God's forgiving work. There's two points in the sermon that I think are the most difficult. I don't know anybody who hasn't struggled with forgiveness. I want you to know that. When we get into a conversation pastorally with anybody in this church and anybody in any church that I've ever been in, in any state I've ever lived in, and you ask them, what do you struggle with? Eventually, you will get to the issue of forgiveness. It is the hardest thing when you said that Carrie Underwood did the right thing. I mean, we all feel that way. When people hurt us, that's what we want to do. But when we don't forgive, when the, sun doesn't, when the sun goes down and we haven't given up on our anger, it literally gives Satan, our enemy, a foothold to act in our life. I was listening to somebody talk uh, this past week, and they were talking about the difference between D-Day and V-E Day. D-Day is when the Allied troops at the end of World War II landed on Normandy, the southwest corner of France. And they said when they landed there and they got on the beach, it was though the war was over. But it took a whole other 10 months to prove that point. The march to Berlin took all that time. When Satan gets a little bit of a foothold in your life, when he gets a little bit of an inroad by the fact that you're mad at somebody and you can't let it go and you stay angry over and over again, what you're doing is you're attaching yourself to that person in such a way that Satan gets at you. And he hurts you over and over again. He redirects your life. He reorients you, re-identifies who you think you are, and you become deceived. And this passage says, if you don't want Satan, the enemy, to get a foothold in your life, the only way is forgiveness. Second thing, Jesus forgave us more than we will ever have to forgive anyone else. I already talked a lot about that, but the idea there is, listen, you have been forgiven, you must forgive. In the words of Matthew chapter 6, if you don't forgive, you shut off the flow of forgiveness in your life, and the light of Jesus that he's trying to shine onto you, it goes missing. You lose so much in the process of not forgiving that could be gained through God's love. You need the forgiveness of God, and so do I. And we lose the sense of it and the belief in it when we suddenly stop forgiving others. Our time is up, so I'm going to move quickly. The last thing is he says, change what you do in secret. Take off even a hint of sexual immorality. Let me read what he says here. It's very important. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. If you are someone who God thinks of as holy, who he has set apart for the purposes that he has only for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says there are good works created only for you. Nobody else can do these works. They are for you alone. 
then these things are things that will hinder, and they're the secrets. Now, I, I would love to ask you to raise your hand, but I won't. You'd start sweating from the head profusely if I asked you for everybody to confess. And if you really felt like you had to do it, most of you would just lie. Let's just admit it, right? How many of you struggle with sexually immoral thoughts? How many of you have looked at an image in the last week that you know you shouldn't have been looking at, but it was a hint of something that you would never want your wife or your husband to see? How many of you have participated in a storyline, some romantic uh, fantasy that fills you up in a way that your spouse never could? Whatever it is, this stuff is a hint of this hurt. The word behind that is a Greek word for a change that our culture does know. It's the Greek word pornea. Where do you think that goes in the English language? Probably all of us know, right? Sexual immorality, get rid of it, even a hint of it. Impurity is the life of wanting more all the time, the party life, getting more and gaining more and living a life where you make money and spend that money and do all this fun stuff. Greed, well, you know that. It doesn't take a rich person to be greedy, right? You got a bank account. You watch it every day. You love to see it grow. When it shrinks, you get mad. Shelby will tell you that I am a person who hates to spend money. She said, well, why do you hate to spend money? This is it. I love to see things just kind of accumulate. I have to watch myself all the time. It's not that I have a ton of money. The point is that we can easily be so focused on the things that we accumulate that we don't take into account all of the generosity of God. He says, take this stuff off. And then he says, put these other things on. Light, good, truth, transparency. And then he's going to say this last line. And I think this is the second most difficult line in the sermon. Confession. How many of you just love to confess your sins? Everybody just raised their hand and said, yes, I would love to. In fact, I, do we have an open mic, Daryl? I mean, could people just come up here and share? We don't want to do that, right? You don't want me to do that. And I'll tell you a secret, okay? I don't want to do that with you. I don't want to tell you everything in my life. But if there's not someone who knows your innermost secrets, the darknesses of your being, the parts of you that are somehow struggling, if there's not somebody like that, you're in trouble. Let me tell you what I mean. In verse 8 of chapter 5, it says, For you were once in darkness, but now you are in light. In the light of the Lord, live as a child of the light and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. You know, we need to be people who walk in the light, who are righteous for the sake of community. If I'm slandering you and you're slandering me, this won't be much of a community. If I'm so mad at you and I've been bitter for a year about something and we, we, we don't even talk about it and we never come to a reconciliation place, it's not much of a community. But here at the end, when it comes down to it, we don't have what it takes to actually be right. And what Paul says in this passage is you actually need other people to be a part of God exposing your secrets. You actually need to share them with somebody. Maybe not everybody, but there needs to be one or two or three people in your life who you have given the right to, who ask you questions. How are you doing on that issue, that secret sin, that thing that you don't want anybody to know about? How are you doing? They're in your side, not the other side. They're, they're your team to help you walk through life. But you need that confession. Because once you expose those dark secrets, they lose their power. The community of God needs righteous people who walk in the light, holy people set apart. But the community of God can't become righteous or holy without, interestingly, the rest of the community helping us to become that. 
You're not enough on your own is what this passage tells you. It ne- you need the other people in this room and they need you. And you think the thing you're struggling with, nobody else has struggled with, and there's 20 people other than you in this room already who are struggling with it. Find them and ask them to help you walk along the path of righteousness because you can't walk that way alone. Two most difficult lines in the sermon, forgive and confess. They are terrible, difficult lines. We're going to close this way, but let me just read you the next line. It says, this is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. This is where we began. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. If you want Christ to shine on your life, if you want all of it that God has offered you, all of the hope and the joy that he promises, all of those fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, if you're wondering why the Christian life has turned out less than expected and you just feel like it's not all that you wished it were, then think about the possibility that in this list there are things that were written to you and that you're not truly all the way in Christ experiencing all the joy of Christ because you're not walking in the light that he provides. There's little secrets. There's little darknesses. There's a little walking in the old way rather than walking all the way in the new and putting off that old culture. Put it off. Put it away. If you can't do it by yourself, find a couple other people. Share with some people who can pray for you and ask God to change and transform you into what he has called you to be. Join me in prayer.